Handy History Teaching Tips, blogs in a conversational style. Handy History Teaching Tips are conversational podcasts designed to help history teachers with tips, examples and ideas about history teaching. Sally Thorne, that's me, is a head of department and senior examiner. Helen Snelson was a head of department and now trains history teachers. Between us, we have more years classroom history teaching experience than we are going to admit here. Both of us regularly write resources and present at conferences. We are proudly history-specific and practical in our approach. Our hope is that this podcast will become something of a problem page for history teachers. Think of Helen and I as your agony aunts. If you're wrestling with something particularly tricky and need some help, drop us an email at handyhistoryteachingtips at gmail.com or tweet us. I'm at Mrs Thorne and Helen is at Snelson H. And we will see what we can cook up between us. Hello, this conversation is part of the series All Things Saucy, top tips to help students use sources as evidence. And this week's podcast is about top tips for using objects and other artefacts um, to help in the classroom, to help your students to understand history better. Yeah, this is a a really canny idea and we want to share with you how using objects and other artefacts can really help your students to get sources and how to use them as evidence to really get the whole um, thing that we're on about as historians. Um, Sometimes my um, trainee teachers have come from a historical archaeology background um, and these trainees always seem to get source work easily. I think Mm. it's uh, because archaeologists are always thinking about contexts. So in their world, the context is the surrounding, often ground, obviously, uh, and the source material is is found in it. And, and right. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about it. Um, so think of the recent amazing Iron Age um, chariot finds in the East Riding of, of Yorkshire. The, the context is the place they were found, the soil type, the level of preservation, the relative placing of one item to another, etc, etc. It's it's really clearly temporal sort of, of time and it's really spatial um, and it's so obviously crucial to trying to understand an archaeological um, find in as much depth as possible. And I think it's a, a really useful thing that, that they off, they always bring every year to the course of the archaeologists. And I always try and, uh, you know, spread that spread that joy, really. Yeah. And as for somebody like so archaeology like complete mystery to me um but it's always really interesting to hear about it and Carenza comes and does sessions at the SHP conference and once they did a dig outside um in the grounds and I just think that's fantastic um you know you could do some great things with students um around that um I always wanted to do a bit of a dig behind my classroom where I used to work because there used to be a pipe factory there so I always thought we could find something quite interesting but typically never got around to it so um but I did something I did do is uh whenever I could was to bring an artifact into class um, and really focusing um, on it to try to reveal um, as clearly as possible the processes of using a source as evidence. How does this object help us to understand the past? And so firstly, it can be really carefully observed Um, with young and sometimes even older students. It's great to ask them what an object looks like. What does it feel like? What does it smell like? How does it sound? And uh, rarely, you know, we, we wouldn't really advise taste but you know and the others certainly you can you can they can get really up close with it and get them really really looking what's its composition its weight does it look old does it is it in good condition and how is it manufactured all of those sorts of things 
Yeah, I, I, I just think that you can you can run and run with questions like that. And again, they're really intriguing and they make us think in a different way. And, and when you've exhausted that, um, and it should take some time, I think it's only then, isn't it, that we bring in the inference with questions such as, what do you think it might have seen or heard or experienced? I love where might it have been um, or how might it have come into being? Um also, how might it have survived? Mm. I do this with a set of objects with trainees that I've collected from the Western Front. And and the curiosity and intrigue really um, does what well, it builds and it builds as the creative ideas flow. Um, and it's lovely getting a class intrigued and curious using artifacts in that way. Yeah, I it, it, these are the sorts of questions that I ask myself when I'm nerding out around you know on my on my history teacher holidays like who else has walked on this floor who else has held this it just is kind of interesting to think about um so and with one or a, a group of objects you can really easily draw out um that they are creating more questions than they are answering um so enter knowledge you can bring their knowledge in here yay knowledge so if you start with an object or objects um then you can spend a lesson working with the relevant historical context and at the end of the lesson students can explain using their new knowledge the context to the artifact uh, for example the role of barbed wire bullets shell fragments and shrapnel on the western front and voila the disciplinary process of using a source as evidence has been really clearly exposed while the learning of topic knowledge has also taken place Oh, so what's your favourite artefact then, Sally? Well, I, do you know, I really like um, this anti-slavery sugar bowl um, that was created um, towards the end of the 18th century by Wedgwood. Um, there's lots of images of it online. It's kind of brown and on, it says on the outside of it in gold, East India sugar not made by slaves. And I say slaves in a very loud voice because it's all in capitals and very large. So when you're looking at it, it's the first thing that catches your eye. And um, this was made uh, kind of Wedgwood was, was a famous abolitionist. He was responsible for the buttons um, that am I not not a man and a brother um, buttons that were really popular at the time, too. Um, and this, you know, artifact would have been placed on a tea table in a fancy ho home. You know, you can bring in there's so many things you can bring in here. You know, nods Katie Hall thinking about the 18th century, this rising tea drinking culture. You know, having an art uh, an article like this on your table would have shown that you were a fashionable person, but also that you were willing, you were wanting to have a conversation about this. You were putting out a political statement. Um, so yeah, I, I really love using that one, um, and I wish I had one. Um, we were just talking, weren't we, about how people just throw things away because they think they're not useful anymore. I think I'd love to get my hands on one of those. Oh, yeah. Just just you wish it could talk as well, all the places yeah. it had been in the meantime. I um, Josiah Wedgwood as well, fascinating character. The Jenny Uglow book, The Lunar Men, um, brings him in and it's just absolutely great great reading what a character yeah I've recently got fascinated actually by the York Viking horde um yeah a bit of a Yorkie uh, in the British Museum um because it was buried about 927 and it was dug up by metal detectorists in 2007 which is just extraordinary in itself yeah. um and it's it's made up of coins but it's also got bracelets and then there's some hacked up silver and gold um and it's presumed it was buried by a Viking about the time that King Athelstan was pushing back the Anglo-Scandinavians and uniting England, which is 
quite a time period and the coins themselves reveal so much about the extent of trade into Yorvik as York was called there's connections right over to Samarkand you know I can stand on the local wharves here and think people a thousand years ago knew about or had connections to Samarkand and the regions that are now Afghanistan it's just incredible and the other thing is that one of them has got a St. Peter, um, but the St. Peter penny, it's spelt using the hammer of Thor. Wow. And I just think that's a gorgeous example of the merging of Christian and old pagan symbolism. Good for Christmas-ish time. Um, <laughs> and of course, we've got absolutely no idea why the man never went back to collect his treasure, which is really frustrating. But as the centre of a lesson on the creation of a united England, it's a gorgeous set of objects to use as as evidence for those times and to to really get some curiosity uh, uh, going about the issue. Yeah. And and we could go back to that. um, These sources are windows analogy, can't we? That the, you know, the, the small windows with really clear glass giving a really precise view, but only letting us see a really tiny part of that whole view. Um, and we need so much more to be able to understand them, much of which is kind of lost forever. Um, in the case of my sugar bowl, we've got lots of written records and, and other records that survive to contextualise it. But in the case of your Viking horde, I guess our knowledge is is relatively fragmentary and likely to remain that way. Yeah. And that understanding that we're constructing narratives of the past using fragments to make history can also be really well supported by using objects. Take the Bayes Tapestry. Um, you know, let's not forget the story of how it has survived since it was made until now, which is just extraordinary. It, do you know it was wrapped up like a toilet roll at one point <laughs> and it was nearly used as a cover for weapons in the French Revolution? Um, then, of course, it had to be hidden from Hitler. You know, just again, if only the Bayer Tapestry could talk, I think I'd be more interested in where it's been since than whether Harold really was shot. with an arrow in his eye I mean we know we ended up dead but it 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 deserves respect that thing for surviving but it also gets across the the precarious nature of survival I think for me it's like seeing as well when I saw that first saw the Beowulf uh, manuscript live if you like seeing the burnt edges of the Beowulf manuscript and thinking oh my god it really was that close to being destroyed in the fire that took a lot of the cotton collection um in 1731 mm-hmm. makes you really think about all that's been lost um or not yet found as i suppose in the case of those metal detected coins i was talking about yeah and all kinds of things pop in this you're making me think of this i had a student who brought in once um a hat it was a um a, a nazi airman's hat and her grandfather found it washed up on the beach <laughs> It was, it was incredible. She was like, look at this. I was just, oh, my God. Let's cancel all lessons. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. I've, I had a kid once bring in a, a signed copy of Mein Kampf that her grandmother <laughs> had been given. And another one was the kid who walked in with a foot long bayonet that his great uncle had taken off a German soldier. And it was like, I think I'll look after that wow. till, till the lesson. Um, we've got mit uns on the on the waist strap. It's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Time to get in the attic. Yeah. 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 I think so that I mean, really, this is just all one big tip, isn't it? That you should use objects and actually ask students what objects they've got. Get them to bring them in because they're well, unless unless they're foot long knives. Obviously, they should leave those at home. But yeah, I think you can. They they have some fascinating stories to tell. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely amazing. And also, they're ones that history teachers dine out on as well. Because I've got another colleague who um, duly uh, accepted some uh, hand grenades in the First World War and then realised the pins were still in. And that, oh no! Um, 
that blew the timetable out for the day. Um, thankfully, not literally, only metaphorically. Um, anyway, but yeah, that, that last point does also bring in another tip, I think, Sal, which is about um, tentative language. Oh, yeah, certainly. I think it does. So we, I think we need to model the tentative language that shows that fragmentary nature of the past um, and help our students to practice it orally um, and in writing. And so the blog post we talked about in the last episode um, by Paula Lobo, that's got some good examples of that. If you haven't had a look at that, it's worth going to see, um, like implies and suggests and partially and that yeah. sort of thing. I think and I've always put them on a continuum um, for kids. So how certain are we from very certain on one end, almost like a timeline to no idea at the other end? And then take them through the words through likely, probably, possibly, maybe, perhaps and, and, and so on. And just really kit them up with the tentative language and then and then be fierce about them using it. Yes. Yeah. And I, in fact, I used to have a continuum of language display poster that I made with my year 12s one year. And so we thought of lots of, of kind of this tentative hedging words and plotted them on a line of agreement. And then I kept it stuck on the wall behind my desk so I could refer to it both with them and other students. And we used to talk about it with my uh, GCSE students as well. Now, I definitely nicked this idea off someone. Um, it might have been you, but I can't remember who it was. So sorry. Thanks very much. Whoever suggested that. Um, it's really making me want to do it again with my sixth form is now actually That'd be a good yeah yeah it would make a really good end of term activity or, or collaboration for literacy projects actually wouldn't it with the English department as well oh, yeah yeah that, that would be, be nice. yeah and uh, you know as we all know sharing load sharing the load with other people is uh, is really good for well-being and in fact that's sort of related to my well-being tip for this time and um, which is kind of a you know uh, a poor man's choice for a well-being tip but what I'm finding myself um, at the moment is just a bit swamped with marking because of the sixth form mocks um, but I find that the job is much more easily done if I'm marking alongside somebody else I used to have someone that I go to a cafe with it's really good it made me more accountable we both sit and mark in silence then after a while we'd stop and have a coffee and a chat um, and it just helped the whole task to seem less of a burden and yeah, as I so I realised this is a bit of a cold comfort well-being tip but I do think that trying different ways of doing the less enjoyable bits of your job until you hit on a way that works is definitely a worthy pursuit and hopefully not too depressing suggestion for this oh week. no that's a brilliant one thanks Sal good to talk to you again take yeah. care thanks bye, bye.